This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray. God of all nations, Lord of history, we worship you this morning. On this important day in the life of our country, remember our short history is one of triumph and tragedy, of profound ideals and the failure to live up to them. Speak to us through your word this morning. Transform us into a more beautiful and faithful and prophetic people for your glory and the good of the world. Amen. You may be seated. Well, every July for the past 16 or 17 years, so basically the whole of my adult life, I've taken to read a book on American history during the month. It's, I guess, one small way that I try to become a better citizen, and more importantly, a better Christian and a better pastor in the place that I call home. And for the past couple of years, I've focused my reading on Frederick Douglass. Two years ago, I read his autobiography, Last year, I read a great biography by David Blight, and uh, this year, I've been reading a collection of Frederick Douglass's speeches. Frederick Douglass, for those who've forgotten, was an American born into slavery in February of 1817. We don't know his exact birthday because they didn't keep good records. He was born on the eastern shore of Maryland, not very far from where I grew up. When he was 20 or 21, Douglass fled to the north and he escaped slavery and became the great writer and orator that we know him to be today. Fun fact about his life, he, Frederick Douglass, was the most photographed person of the 19th century, and for good reason. He was a truly remarkable man. He was America's conscience. He was the voice of judgment and hope. He was America's great prophet. Spending the past few years with this amazing man, has helped me to see just how essential prophets are to the life of a nation, also to the life of the church. They function like GPS. They point out where we've gone wrong and they point us in the right direction. Our text this morning is Ezekiel 2, where Ezekiel is installed as a prophet to the exiles in Babylon. And we're gonna look at two things together this morning. We're gonna look at first what a prophet is and then second, we're going to consider the prophetic witness of the church. So first, what is a prophet? Who are they? What are they like? And what do they do? Well, the best description I know of what a prophet is, is this. Prophets are disturbed people that disturb people. They're disturbed people that disturb people. I wish I could take credit for that. It's a great line. I actually got it from a conversation with one of my friends who is a prophet. And uh, because he's a prophet, he's constantly making me uncomfortable. And I mean that in the best way possible. Prophets are disturbed people that disturb people. To explain what I mean, I want to highlight a few key dimensions of a prophet's ministry that we see in our passage before us today. We'll see that a prophet is commissioned, a prophet is granted vision, and a prophet responds with radical obedience. So first, a prophet is commissioned. A prophet is put into active service. They're sent on a mission. They're acting with God's authority. A prophet is sent to speak for God, to be a megaphone, to be the mouthpiece of God. And we see this in verse 3 and 4. 
God says to Ezekiel, mortal, I am sending you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. He goes on, the descendants are impudent and stubborn. I am sending you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord. The summary of the prophet's orders are in verse 7. You shall speak my words to them. It's important to remember that prophets don't send themselves. False prophets do that. Prophets are commissioned by God. They're commissioned to speak for God. Next, we see that a prophet is granted vision. And we actually see this throughout the entire book of Ezekiel. Our passage begins right after Ezekiel's very first vision. And so I want us to back up a little bit to go to the very beginning of the book and look at this vision. We see in the beginning of chapter one that Ezekiel, he's introduced as a priest and he's sitting by a river in Babylon. Why is he in Babylon? Well, he's with the rest of God's people in exile. They've been kicked out of the land because of their rebellion. They are far from the temple. They're far from Jerusalem, and that means they're far from the presence of God. Not sure exactly what Ezekiel is doing. Maybe he's praying because he's a priest. Maybe he's skipping rocks. Out of nowhere, lightning strikes. He sees a vision of the living God, and then he does his best to to put it into words. There's brightness, there's fire flashing forth, and then things get pretty psychedelic, things get pretty trippy in the first chapter of Ezekiel. He sees four winged creatures with four winged faces, and then these shining, spinning wheels that kind of create this throne upon which he sees something like a human form. And then everything goes all thunder and fire, and it was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That's the best he can describe it. And upon seeing this vision of the Lord, Ezekiel does what every single one of us in this room would do. He collapses on the ground. And this is where our passage picks up in chapter 2. In order to commission Ezekiel, God has to pick him up off the floor. Ezekiel sees a vision of God, and he's also given to see a vision of Israel's rebellion. Israel was redeemed to be a light to the nations, but she has become far worse than all the nations that surround her. So God tears off the blinders of Ezekiel so that he can see what God's people have become. A nation of rebels, transgressors, impudent and stubborn. They are briars, they are thorns. God's people are scorpions. Throughout the book, Ezekiel is given to see how the people's idolatry translates into immorality and injustice. Because idolatry, it's like a spiritual law. Idolatry always leads to immorality and injustice. This is uh, summarized in Ezekiel 22. Because the people worship false gods, they end up shedding innocent blood. They oppress the foreigner. They neglect the orphan and the widow. Sexual abuse has run rampant in the community. This commission and vision we see absolutely overwhelms the prophet Ezekiel. Traumatic is probably the right word to describe it. We see in verse three, chapter 3, verse 15, that after this vision and after this commission, Ezekiel returns to the people and he basically just sits among them for a week. I don't know what he's doing, staring at a wall. He is stunned. He's become a disturbed man and he's called to disturb people which is what he proceeds to do for the next 10 years of his life. And this requires radical obedience. That's the third dimension of prophetic ministry that we see. And right from the gates, 
That's not going to be easy. God tells Ezekiel that his prophetic ministry is going to be very hard and most likely very ineffective. The deaf will not hear. The stubborn are only going to dig in their heels. But speak to them anyway. And if you read the entirety of the book of Ezekiel, you see that God commands him to do and say some really strange things. He commands him to do this bizarre prophetic street theater to act out what is going to happen to Israel. And he tells him to preach words that gets him thrown into prison. And despite the crazy call and the overwhelming obstacles, Ezekiel the prophet obeys God. He disturbs the people. He calls them to wake up. He calls them to repentance, to turn from death to life. I love how the Jewish scholar Abraham Heschel describes the radical ministry of the prophet in his book on the prophets. He writes this, While the rest of the world is at ease and asleep, the prophet's word is a scream in the night. The false prophets of Ezekiel's day scream peace, peace, when there is no peace, and Ezekiel screams in the night. He indicts the prophets, and he says they are liars. He indicts the priests, they have betrayed God's word. He indicts the princes, they are men of violence. He indicts all of God's people because they're abusing the vulnerable. For 10 years, the prophet Ezekiel risks his reputation and his life. And yet the people do not listen. The people do not turn. They're rebellious and stubborn. And I think there's a lesson in here for us about radical obedience, what it looks like. You see, faithfulness often seems ineffective because faithfulness often is ineffective in a sense. But God calls us to obedience and he calls us to entrust the consequences, the results to him. He says to Ezekiel, you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear. And if we take a step back and we look at the whole book of Ezekiel, his entire prophetic ministry, we see that Ezekiel bore witness to the, arguably the greatest tragedy in Israel's life and one of the greatest visions of hope in Israel's life. And the tragedy was God's presence departing the temple. Ezekiel was a prophet when the temple and the city of Jerusalem were destroyed in the year 586 BC. God left his people, it was a tragedy. And the great vision of hope that Ezekiel bears witness to, we read about in Ezekiel 37, when God promises to resurrect the valley of dry bones, the dead people, dead Israel. He promises to give them a new heart and to pour his spirit out upon them. And all of these things, of course, point us to Jesus. Ezekiel foreshadows the prophetic ministry of the great prophet. 600 years after leaving the temple, God returns in Jesus. God takes on flesh and tabernacles among us. Like Ezekiel, Jesus was commissioned. He was granted vision, and he lived a life of radical obedience. Like the long line of prophets before him, Jesus was rejected by the people he came to save. His great prophetic act was the passion, the cross, his word of judgment, the resurrection, his word of hope. In Christ, Ezekiel's prophetic vision is coming true. The valley of dry bones is being raised to new life. Those dead because of their idolatry and immorality and injustice are being made alive by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus. 
A few weeks ago, we celebrated this amazing reality in the Feast of Pentecost. When the Spirit was poured out on God's people, quoting another prophet, the prophet Joel, the Apostle Peter explained what was going on. He says, when the Spirit is poured out, God's people will prophesy. They'll see visions. They'll dream dreams. Men, women, young, old, rich, poor, all will prophesy. It's important to think about what this means. It means that after Pentecost, the Spirit-filled church will have a prophetic voice. You think about it as the prophethood of all believers. But this raises a hard question if this is true. How are we doing? How are we doing as God's prophets? Are we declaring the mighty works of God? I want to spend the rest of our time this morning reflecting on this, this prophetic witness of the church. Now, I'm curious if I were to ask you, I won't ask you to say it out loud, but if I were to ask you, how would you rate the prophetic witness of the American church? How would you rate the prophetic witness of our church, Church of the Ascension? I'm curious what your neighbors would say, what your coworkers think. If I did a poll and asked you what you thought the greatest threat to the prophetic witness of the church is, I imagine I'd get a dozen really good answers. Things like Christian nationalism, the sexual abuse scandals in the church, caving into our cultural sexual ethic or lack thereof, buying into QAnon, the prosperity gospel, denial of climate change, celebrity Christianity. A case can be made for all of these things in so many ways our witness in the public sphere has been compromised. We've become disturbing for all the wrong reasons. This morning, this 4th of July, I want us to focus on another threat, that of racial injustice and the church's complicity. Frederick Douglass addressed this in his famous speech, What to the Slave is the 4th of July? If you've not read it, I encourage you to do so. In this speech, he criticizes the nation for not living up to its man-made charters, the Declaration and the Constitution. And then he proceeds to slam the church for not living up to her divine command, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to the prophet Douglas. He writes this, or he said this, the church of this country is not only indifferent to the wrongs of the slave, it actually takes the side with the oppressor. The American church is guilty with what it is doing to uphold slavery, but it is superlatively guilty when viewed in connection with its ability to abolish slavery. The church is guilty of sins of omission and commission of what it does and what it does not do. Now, if you replace the word slavery with racism and slave with person of color, you have a pretty good summary of the argument in Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise. If you've not read that book and you're looking to read some American history, I encourage you to read that this July. From the colonial era to the Civil War, from Reconstruction to Jim Crow, from the Civil Rights Movement to mass incarceration, Tisby chronicles the American church's complicity in the sin of racism. When the white church should have been fighting injustice, we were on the sidelines, or worse, we were on the side of the oppressor. 170 years, Frederick Douglass's prophetic words still ring true for the American church today. Fortunately, God loves us, and he sends prophetic voices to correct us. Prophetic voices like Jamar Tisby and so many others are helping us to wake up to these horrible realities. They're calling us to turn from death to life, 
The question is, are we listening? Or are we a rebellious house? The truth is, the truth is, despite our failures, the church still has something the world needs to hear. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is the only antidote to the evil and the sin of racism. It's the only antidote to the evil of racism that doesn't merely turn the oppressed into the oppressor. It's not too late for us to turn, to repent, and to bear prophetic witness. Because like Ezekiel, the church has been commissioned. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, we receive the great commission from Jesus Christ. He says this, go, make disciples of all nations. The church is to be an international, multicultural, multi-ethnic community. And we're commissioned to teach the disciples to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And that's summarized in loving God and our neighbor. This includes much more than racial justice, but certainly not less. The church has also been granted vision. In Revelation 7, we see this heavenly vision where Jesus is on the throne and he is surrounded by a multitude of worshipers, people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. In this vision, we see a church where there's unity without uniformity, where cultural and ethnic differences are celebrated, they're not suppressed. And like Ezekiel, ours is a twofold vision. We're also seeing just how far removed the American church is from that ultimate goal. The church is also called to radical obedience, to help bridge the gap between Revelation 7 and 2021. This requires that we take up the mantle of the prophet, that we become a disturbed people that disturb people. And for this, we need so much grace and so much patience. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to be filled by the Spirit as we take up our cross daily and love our neighbors, love our enemies, care for the vulnerable and the oppressed. Now is the time, the important time, as Frederick Douglass said. Now is the time to respond with radical obedience to the gospel in this struggle for justice. And that means committing to listening and to learning and to lamenting. It means confessing and repenting. It means seeking reconciliation and repair, forging personal relationships and strategic partnerships. It means protesting violence and unjust laws. It means these things and so much more. I want to end this morning with a song that Elise is going to sing for us. I invite her to go to the piano to prepare to sing. It's a tune you'll recognize, but it has uh, new words, different words. You see, God's prophets have always brought judgment and hope to the people of God. And this song that you're about to hear is a prophetic song of hope. The peace of the Lord will make us one. And this is our only hope. Let this be our prayer. May it inspire our prophetic witness. Amen. Hello, I'm Chris Massa. I'm Director of Music and Worship Arts at Church of the Ascension, and I edit the audio for the Ascension Sermons podcast. The song that Father Kevin is referring to near the end of his sermon is Your Peace Will Make Us One by Audrey Assad. But for copyright reasons, we couldn't include the audio of that song as part of the podcast feed. 
What I did instead is that in the show notes for this episode, um, I included a link to the YouTube video of the live stream service, where the song was sung by my wife, Elise Massa. I also included a link to the YouTube video of Audrey Assad's original recording. Thank you, and God bless.